Good morning, Texas. Welcome to Justice for All, the Wyatt Wright Show. I'm Wyatt Wright, and this show is about your rights and the laws that govern us. Rights you've heard about and care about would certainly miss if they were gone. I've spent half a lifetime watching government go from trying to do what's right and failing to trying to do what's wrong and succeeding. Every year, more and more personal rights are erased from the books while Americans stand idly by, not because we don't care, of course we care, but because our lives are busy enough just trying to raise our families. We're busying ourselves with life, but all the while, things are going on around us that we need to know about. On this show, we talk about these legal issues that affect you and me, the people of Texas. We take a hard look at the laws that affect your freedom, your ability to access the courts, to vote, or in short, to live the American dream. Stick around. We'll be joined by top San Antonio medical malpractice lawyer Lee Parsons and hear his thoughts on how our new laws affect you. Well, there's a burr under Texas's saddle blanket you need to know about. In 2003, in Texas, the message from the governor's mansion was that there was a huge problem in Texas. The message was that health care was in crisis. Hospitals were getting ready to close. Doctors were leaving the state. And it was said that this was because of lawsuits brought by injured people against doctors who deviated from the standard of care that they needed to abide by. That is, medical malpractice insurance premiums were rising to the point that doctors couldn't afford them and the fault was lawsuits. Well, we know now that this was false. A report by the University of Texas Law and Economics research paper said Texas was not losing physicians before medical malpractice reforms took effect. In fact, from 1990 to 2002, all claims for medical malpractice decreased significantly, decreased. One expert report even found that as few as only one of every 25 medical malpractice victims goes so far as to bring a claim. But stop to think about who paid for the malpractice damages. It wasn't the doctors. It was the insurance company. So we don't have to look very far to see who has a vested interest in capping medical malpractice claims. We took insurance companies at their word. But what we forgot to do was ask them to prove it. We didn't look at their books. Because if we did, we would have seen record-breaking profits from a premium-to-payout standpoint. All the while, malpractice insurance rates continued to rise. So instead of passing legislation to improve health care or investigating whether insurance premiums were out of balance with payouts, Texas passed laws that sacrificed the safety of its citizens. Now, there are three ways insurance companies make money. They can make them with premiums. They can make it on investments that they make, just like you and I. And they can make it by denying claims or not paying out. A reminder, you're listening to the Justice for All Wyatt Wright Show. On this program, we talk about ever-increasing disappearance of your American rights. But we didn't look at the insurance company's checkbook registers. Instead, we passed House Bill 4 in 2003, effectively gutting Texans' ability to hold negligent doctors accountable for their misdeeds. Everybody needs to operate by the standards of their profession. Accountants, lawyers, architects, home builders even car mechanics, all ought to be expected to perform in accordance with what is normal in their industry. This makes sense, right? I mean, if you hire somebody to build a home, you expect that he will use the proper number of nails. He's going to insulate it properly, etc. If you have a muffler replaced on your car, you expect that it will be welded in place, not put on with duct tape. And I don't think anybody would disagree that if a mechanic does put your muffler on with duct tape, You ought to have the right to take him to court for the damage he causes. Most doctors are kind, caring, competent professionals. 
I'm an attorney, and some of my best friends are doctors. But when I go to them, I expect them to use all their medical competence. And when they come to me for legal work, they expect me to use all of my legal competence. If I don't and they are harmed, they have a right to bring a lawsuit against me for damages. Why, then, is the medical profession treated differently? All professionals ought to take responsibility for the preventable harm that they cause to others. You know, doctors feel this way, too. I mean, after all, they live in the same world we do. But big insurance needed a plan. They knew they wouldn't get sympathy if they went to the public and said, we want more money. So instead, they raised malpractice premiums to the point that doctors would complain and then told them it was because of lawsuits. Well, without the facts in front of them, doctors trusted their insurance companies to tell the truth. The result was a fictitious crisis that had many doctors expecting at any moment to get sued. But the truth is that a mere 5.9% of all physicians are responsible for the vast majority of malpractice payments. Only 5.9%. That's a fantastic compliment to the medical profession. But it's clear that far and away the majority of doctors have no reason to fear a lawsuit. Our guest today is... Lee Parsons. We're going to get right to the guest now. We've got a lot to talk about. In the studio is Lee. Lee's a 24-year lawyer practicing at the law offices of Wainwright in San Antonio. Lee handles general negligence cases, but he also specializes in representing injured people in medical malpractice claims. Lee, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show, Wyatt. Yeah, you bet. You know, we're talking about this House Bill 4 and what it did in Texas, and it did many things uh, that I want to talk to you about today. One of which is it imposed a $250,000 cap on non-economic damages, which is basically except what? Everything but lost wages and medical costs, something like that. That's correct. Okay. It, it insulated emergency rooms from substandard care that, that might be performed. Uh, it, it, it has a pre-suit notice provision, and it requires an expert report within 120 days with a case-killing deadline. And, and this is what I want to start talking to you about, Lee. In, in the context of this $250,000 cap, I want to pose to you an example. Two men the same age go to the same doctor on the same day, both complaining of chest pains. The standard of care requires that they be immediately sent to a hospital for a full workup, EKGs, blood, the works. The doctor knows this, but is having a bad day, decides to let them sit in his waiting room for four hours. Both of them suffer major heart attacks. The blood flow is cut off for too long to their brain. They both live, but they're essentially in a vegetative state for the rest of their lives. Now, man A made $200,000 a year. Man B made $30,000 a year. If their life expectancy was another 25 years, man A could recover $5 million, while man B could only recover $750,000. So prior to House Bill 4, both men could recover the full value for their lost time with the family, full value of their impairment, but after House Bill 4, this amount was capped at $250,000. But I suspect if you interviewed both wives, you'd find that both wives were just as distraught, having lost somebody very important to them. So, Lee, doesn't this mean that the economic value of the claim really in large part depends on the size of a person's paycheck? Well, it does. Uh, that's exactly what the law does. Uh, in your example, 
you know, the one man's case is going to be worth significantly more, and the jury is deprived of the opportunity to balance that out by awarding uh, damages for non-economic damages, for the loss to the family. That Both of those men were just as important to their family, uh, but uh, the law is going to prevent them from awarding more than this cap, which is $250,000 per claimant. Well, okay, so we've got this cap on the non-economic damages, but let me just pose you this question. Is that is that really the cap? I mean, it seems to me if that's, if that's the most that an insurance company is ever going to have to pay, are they ever going to really pay it? And how willing are they actually to pay that amount? Well, in reality, no case will ever settle for $250,000. Uh, if the insurance company knows that's their maximum they'll ever have to pay, the settlement value of that case will be substantially less, perhaps between one hundred and fifty dollars and $200,000, because the insurance company knows that you will have to spend significant funds just to chase after that maximum of $250,000. So, yes, the actual value of the case is substantially less than the cap. So now we've got a we've got an artificial cap that that doesn't actually have anything to do with the cap that's in the statute. That's true. the The stated cap in the in the statute is just an arbitrary number, but in reality, the number will be less because we know how much litigation costs. Okay. Well, then let me just ask you this: How does this concept of an artificial cap affect your client's decisions as as to whether or not to pursue a case? Well, the problem with the cap is is that the most vulnerable people in our society, we're talking about children, we're talking about the elderly, we're talking about disabled, uh, people who don't have a lot of economic damages. These are people that may not be gainfully employed. If they're the victims of malpractice, the majority of their damages are what we call non-economic damages. It's the pain, the suffering, the physical scars, the disability, those types of things. And those damages are capped at $250,000. So these more vulnerable people in our society are the ones that are limited to $250,000 for those types of damages. And that's where the, the law falls short. Okay, so this is, this is in effect leaving a, a bunch of folks out in the cold who, who may have legitimate claims. I mean, isn't that what's happening? Yeah, some of the most injured people are the ones that are affected by this. And again, the ones that are the most vulnerable uh, are the ones that are cut off. Yeah, and that, that probably is, is one of the things that the, the legislation did not contemplate. Just a reminder to everybody, you're listening to Justice for All, the Wyatt Wright Show. On this program, we talk about and discuss the ever-increasing disappearance of your American rights. Coming up, we're going to open the email bag to see what you have to say to me, so stick around for that. Let's talk now, Lee, about, uh, and we've got Lee Parsons in the studio, medical malpractice attorney here in San Antonio, uh, who's got some thoughts on this. And I, I'd like to talk to you, Lee, if you, if you, if you uh, may, about House Bill 4's insulation of emergency room conduct and the way that substandard care now in an emergency situation uh, leaves people without any remedy uh, at all. Tell us how emergency rooms are, are insulated from negligence lawsuits under House Bill 4. Well, under House Bill 4, there is a provision that says that uh, if you receive emergency care in a hospital emergency room or emergency care in other, part of, other parts of the hospital, that the standard is changed and you no longer can just prove negligence. You have to prove gross negligence in order to recover uh, for any, uh, any untoward event that occurred. The standard for gross negligence is much, much higher. It is willful and wanton conduct. So it almost has to rise to the level of a doctor intentionally harming a patient. 
And as a practical matter, that cannot be proven. And so uh, doctors in an emergency room setting and hospital emergency rooms enjoy a uh, almost 100% immunity. Well, okay, so you've got to prove that. And, I, and most doctors don't set out to intentionally harm somebody. No, no. Most of the cases that we deal with, no one certainly intended to, to have a bad result. Uh, but uh, we allege in a negligence case that someone uh, deviated from the standard of care. Uh, they didn't do what a reasonable, prudent doctor would have done under the same or similar circumstances. Gross negligence is a whole different universe. This is where a doctor comes in and almost willfully and wantonly engages in a reckless course of conduct that uh, injures a patient. Uh, the classic example would be a doctor who came into the emergency room who was uh, intoxicated. The hospital knew he was intoxicated, but they allowed him to work on patients and someone was hurt. That might qualify for gross negligence, but your run-of-the-mill uh, case would never qualify. All right. Well, listen, a, a report from the Institute of Medicine found recently that as many as 98,000 Americans die each year from preventable medical errors in hospitals. Uh, to me, this is staggering, but I noticed the word preventable, which seems to me to mean that doctors aren't following those accepted standards for their profession that you were just talking about. Is that what that means? That's what it means. Uh, that means that there was an error that certainly was preventable. It wasn't just a judgment call. It was just something that they failed to do that uh, they were trained to do, and uh, it is preventable error, and those are the things that... Uh, that we try to help people with. And that's the same kind of thing in your profession. I mean, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're expected to live up to certain standards, and if you don't do it, well, then somebody ought to have a cause of action for that. Sure. Uh, attorneys are held accountable like any other professional. Well, now we're talking about the emergency rooms. Do doctors in emergency rooms have a different set of medical standards that they have to follow from, say, the doctor down the street? Well, you know, the emergency room doctor should adhere to the standard of care, but under this law they enjoy uh, this immunity. And so, yes, I mean, I, I think as a society we feel like they ought to uh, be held to the same standard as any other physician, but uh, unfortunately under House Bill 4 uh, they enjoy this immunity, and it causes uh, some folks that have some serious injuries uh, to go uncompensated because we cannot represent them under those circumstances. And this is where the majority of medical error deaths occur. So it doesn't seem to make much sense that we ought to be treating emergency rooms differently. Yeah, I mean, a classic example is a lady comes into the emergency room. Uh, she uh, tells the doctors about her uh, allergy. She's wearing a med alert bracelet that says she's allergic to a particular antibiotic. Uh, the doctors and nurses accidentally give her that antibiotic. Um, and she dies as a result, a wrongful death case. Well, uh, that is not gross negligence. It's clearly negligence. They failed to follow the standard of care, but I'm not able to represent that lady because under those circumstances, that family who lost that mother, that wife, uh, does not have a cause of action because they cannot prove gross negligence just because it happened in the emergency room. Well, it doesn't sound right at all. Just a reminder to everybody, you're listening to Justice for All, the Wyatt Wright Show. I'm Wyatt Wright, and we're pointing out the ever-increasing disappearance of your American rights. And it's time to reach into our mailbag. Well, today we've got an email from Jennifer in Pleasanton who writes, What a good way to stay, what is a good way to stay up on the new laws that might get passed? Stephen in San Antonio says, I tried searching for more on the Texas Windstorm Association law you spoke about recently. But their site isn't helping. What is the site? Well, let me tell you both, uh, uh, Stephen and Jennifer both, uh, texaswatch.org 
is a fantastic site in Texas to go to for a lot of this information. Uh, this consumer advocacy group uh, looks out for you and I, and uh, and they, they pay attention to all the things that are changing in Texas, especially the laws that are coming up. Go visit them at TexasWatch.org. I bet you'll get all your answers right there. Getting back now, we've got Lee Parsons in the studio, a medical malpractice attorney in San Antonio, Texas. He's visiting with us about the effects of House Bill 4 in Texas, which passed in 2003 putting severe restrictions on patients' ability to get redress in the courts if something happens to them at their doctor or in the emergency room. Lee, tell us now, the, the other component that, that we mentioned earlier about House Bill 4 is this concept of a pre-suit notice and expert reports. Tell us, if you would, how the new expert report requirement actually works. Well, under House Bill 4, when a medical malpractice case is uh, filed within 120 days of the date of filing, Expert reports must be filed with respect to each and every health care provider that you've made a complaint against. And uh, this, uh, this expert uh, report requirement uh, is an onerous one and one that is, uh, creates a, a minefield uh, for plaintiff's attorneys who are trying to help folks that have been injured as a result of malpractice. All right. Well, let me read you an excerpt from a recent report uh, from the Texas Watch Foundation, actually. Uh, It says, the non-economic damages cap hits those without wages and economic damages particularly hard, making even the most clear-cut malpractice cases on behalf of the elderly, the young, the disabled, and stay-at-home parents financially impossible to pursue given the high cost of retaining medical experts, which comprise the bulk of litigation expenses. Lee, as a lawyer practicing in this field, how true is that statement? Well, that's, uh, that's very true. Uh, the single most uh, costly part of a medical malpractice investigation and lawsuit uh, is the hiring of consultants or experts. Uh, it's, it's extremely expensive, and uh, this is something that House Bill 4 requires us to do very early on in the case, which puts plaintiffs at a, at a, at a vast disadvantage. Yeah, and that's something that, uh, that ultimately uh, won't feel the effect that, that it, Joe Q. Public's not going to see that unless they're faced with that situation, and that's the real unfortunate part. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Justice for All, the Wyatt Wright Show. We're here visiting with Lee Parsons, a medical malpractice attorney in San Antonio, Texas, talking about the effects of House Bill 4 and what it does to Texans' ability to recover for medical errors. So House Bill 4 requires that the expert report be served on the doctor within 120 days of filing suit. And I'm thinking about a recent Texas Supreme Court case uh, from 2011. And in this case, the plaintiff actually filed the expert report at the same time she filed suit. So there was no question that it was within the 120-day deadline the statute provides. The record showed that the doctor was a drug addict for many years, and it was alleged that he was abusing drugs when he caused the injury. The doctor lost his medical license, then he fled from Texas and hid from all attempts to serve him with the report. After 120 days had passed, the doctor's insurance company moved to dismiss the case because the plaintiff hadn't actually served the report on this doctor who was purposefully hiding. The Supreme Court in Texas agreed and dismissed the plaintiff's case, not allowing a jury to hear it, saying that the statute was clear. No service, no case. So under House Bill 4, If a doctor is a drug addict, injures somebody, gets his license revoked, closes his practice, and skips town to hide from the court, he gets off scot-free and his insurance company doesn't have to pay. How is this fair to injured people? 
Well, it obviously isn't fair. You know, that's a windfall to the doctor's insurance company, and I don't think that was what the legislature intended, but that's what has happened, and that's how our Supreme Court has interpreted it. Unfortunately, a lot of these provisions in the House Bill 4 that applies to medical malpractice, the penalty for even a small technical noncompliance is the death penalty, meaning that your case will be dismissed and uh, that is the end of your uh, client's cause of action. And so it is truly a minefield, and this is one of the areas that is the most difficult. Coming up with an expert report uh, based on medical records that were authored by the doctor or the nurses at the hospital that your client has an issue with uh, is a is a very tough task. This is expected to be done before you have an opportunity to take depositions, to do extensive discovery, and discover all the facts of the case. So basically you have to put up substantial evidence early on in the case before there's time for a responsible investigation. And in the ordinary lawsuit negligence case, you have the ability to develop that uh, by asking questions, taking depositions, and seeing whether or not all the facts really play out because you've got somebody on the other side who's generally antagonistic. I mean, defendants don't want to be defendants, but that ability to get that information is there, and what you're telling us is that that does not exist in the medical malpractice context. Right. An exception has been caused, uh, has been carved out for these types of cases, and so doctors, all health care providers, uh, enjoy a, uh, a privilege here that is not afforded to other professionals uh, or to the common man. You don't get this uh, in a car wreck case. If someone sues you because you ran into their car, you certainly don't get this type of an advantage where there's uh, stringent deadlines and other onerous burdens uh, uh, put upon you. Yeah, and, and doesn't this lead to situations where you've got legitimate cases that simply don't make sense from a legal standpoint? Right. Uh, we have legitimate cases that uh, that come to the office. We get phone calls all the time. And uh, we have to turn those cases down sometimes because we don't have enough time to investigate. Uh, we have the inability to get some of the information that may be needed for an expert to write a report. And uh, we really are at a disadvantage uh, early on in these cases. So, so in order to get the expert to, to look at the case and tell you whether or not uh, they believe medical negligence has occurred, what they have to deal with is really just the records from that offending doctor. Is that, is that right? That's correct. And, uh, you know, in 24 years of experience in these cases, I find that doctors tend not to record in their own records uh, any negligent acts. And uh, the way they portray the care that was given, um, you know, uh, an expert looks at that and, and probably doesn't get a full picture of what happened because none of us like to admit that we've done something wrong and the records rarely tell the whole story. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, uh, that, that's something that, that, that again, people are, are, are not going to really know about until it, until it hits home to them. Um, one of the selling points used to pass House Bill 4 was the promise that patients wouldn't be left without a way to report unprofessional health care and have meaningful investigations of incompetent doctors. So House Bill 4, I know they created something called the Office of Patient Protection, which was an agency that was supposed to be charged with investigating and revoking licenses of bad doctors. You know, many, many uh, professions have this. I mean, the lawyer profession has it. They have a disinterested uh, a group of folks who go out there and, and, and investigate these allegations. And, and this Office of Patient Protection was something that good doctors supported, too. After all, they didn't want to be sullied by the bad acts of, of these bad apples, uh, and, and we see that in all these professions, and so, too, with doctors. But the Office of Patient Protection 
had a short life. In fact, it never even got off the ground. And anybody who's interested can go see that even though it was created in 2003, along with House Bill 4, the legislature removed all of its funding two years later in 2005, effectively closing the agency. So what happened is this, this left House Bill 4 in place with all of its restrictions and no meaningful way to regulate bad doctors. Is this, is this something that uh, we as a state ought to be considering uh, taking another look at? Yeah, you know, this isn't the first time that this has happened. Uh, there have been a series of medical malpractice laws or statutes passed, and with each one there has been some sort of disclosure panel, uh, ethics panel, uh, standardized discovery. There have been a lot of promises made that I think uh, allowed some legislators to vote for it because they felt like that kind of equaled things out. But then those parts of the bill have disappeared and uh, those things have not come to pass, and all that is left are those uh, parts of the legislation that have severely restricted uh, uh, an injured patient's right to their remedy. Yeah, and, and again, we come back to this, this idea that we're taking a profession, the medical profession, and treating it differently than every other professional uh, institution that exists in, in, in Texas and certainly in the country, and that, of course, is, is part of the, the big problem, isn't it? It really is. Uh, it, uh, uh, we're, we're taking one set of professionals and treating them differently. And, and in the case of these medical malpractice laws that are so stringent in these caps, we are basically depriving these injured uh, folks uh, who have been injured by malpractice of their right to a, a trial by jury. Uh, these are things that juries used to decide. And I don't know about you, Wyatt, but I still believe in, in our jury trial system. I think that 12 people in our community collectively do the right thing almost 99% of the time. And the legislature has taken that away from victims of malpractice. Yeah, I, and you make a good point. I mean, we already have a checks and balance system in place against frivolous lawsuits. It's called the jury. Uh, you know, the reality is that very few actually frivolous cases ever get filed because lawyers can't succeed with a losing case. And then we have juries who will award zero dollars if the case doesn't deserve it. You know, that's what makes America great. I mean, we put the people in power. That's correct. And, uh, you know, the, the jury system works. Uh, we know from long experience it does. Every once in a while there's a, an aberration and there's a, a verdict that's uh, lower or higher than everyone expected. But in general, the jury system works. I believe in it, and I, I feel bad that in this particular case, my clients have been cut off. All right. Well, lastly here, I'm just going to leave you with this. An excerpt from a recent report, the biggest beneficiaries of this rigged system are the insurance companies who are able to routinely collect premiums without having to pay out on them. That's something you see. It's something I see and we need to know about. Uh, I'll point out that anybody that needs to, or wants to get involved in, the, in this uh, type of thing needs to call their legislators. That's what it is all about. Well, we're going to have to wrap up this show, but as you go through your week, remember it was Justice Learned Hand who so famously said, if we're to keep our democracy, there must be one commandment, thou shalt not ration justice. Have a good day, everybody. Let's talk again next week right here on Justice for All. <laughs>